0: And welcome to episode number nine in the Signal Integrity Journal's Fundamentals Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Bogotin. This episode is brought to you thanks to our friends at Roadie and Schwartz. Today, I'm pleased to have with me Chris Myers. Chris is an electrical engineering professor here at CU Boulder and is the chair of the department in which I'm also on the faculty. His research area is in genetic circuits. I didn't know much about this field, but it sounds intriguing, so I thought this interview would be the perfect chance for me to learn about this topic. Join me in my conversation with Chris, where we will all learn something new about building electrical circuit analogs with DNA. So, Chris, you are the department chair here at CU in the Electrical, uh, Computer, and Energy Department, and you've been here, what, two years now, I think? Just about um, here in about 10 days. Okay. And where were you before? I was at
1: the University of Utah for 25 years. My gosh. Also in electrical engineering.
0: Uh, Yeah, electrical and computer engineering. Okay. And uh, did you start at um, University of Utah right out of graduate school? Yeah, I did. Yes. Okay. So you, five. you are an, you've been in academia the whole time. Uh, yes, I have. Okay. What were some of the things that you were working on at Utah? Uh, well, so my,
1: my PhD was in an area um, called asynchronous circuits. So uh, asynchronous circuits are circuits without a global clock. And so that's basically they operate at their own pace. They um, every time you want something done with an asynchronous circuit, you request an operation and you get acknowledgement when that's done. And so when I was a graduate student, I was really keen on designing asynchronous circuits and building integrated circuits and chips. Uh, But then I realized there was no software out there to design asynchronous circuits. So my PhD work focused more on design automation. So I was building software and tools for for basically designing these asynchronous electronic uh, circuits. And so that was the focus of my uh, research when I started at the University of Utah for many years. Um, and then, you know, that kind of evolved over time. Uh, and so of late, uh, I've moved away from electronic circuits. Um, so I don't know if you want me to go into this right now or? Yeah, uh, sure. Okay. So. Yeah. So my area of research primarily now is in design automation of of genetic circuits, which just so happen to also be asynchronous circuits. And so we're still building software and design tools to facilitate the design of circuits. We're just designing them out of DNA instead of silicon now.
0: Okay, so what exactly is a DNA circuit?
1: So inside of... uh, you know, inside of every cell you have uh, DNA, which are essentially kind of the program for the cell. It instructs cells how to um, make proteins. And uh, so there's a famous saying from Francis Crick, which is DNA makes RNA, RNA makes proteins, proteins make us. And so they're basically the um, mechanisms to instruct how to build these uh, important uh, proteins in, our, in all cells. Uh, so the genetic circuits basically are you know, essentially circuits or control networks that decide when to make certain proteins. So they produce these proteins and some of these proteins will actually activate or repress the productions of other proteins. And so there's actually sort of an interaction network much like you'd have in a circuit.
0: So it's a feedback network of some sort, but it's not described by a Laplace transform, for example, or, or is it?
1: I mean, so it turns out that if you are a digital designer like myself, then you see these as logic circuits, but there's also a very large camp of people working in this field called synthetic biology that come from the controls area and they see them as feedback networks and they apply feedback principles to understanding them and control control theory and the like. And so I guess the thing is always people have their favorite hammer and that they bring. Yeah. And, um, and so in my case, it's more of the digital design aspect for reasoning about these systems. But yes, you can definitely think of them as control feedback
0: networks as well. But the mechanism is uh, biochemical or it's a molecular interaction. It's not based on anything that we would associate with um, uh, circuit elements that have a first order differential or differential equation or integral equation, or are they?
1: Well, we certainly describe them using the same modeling techniques. So we build models using ODEs and other things to reason about them. Um, they are, um, uh, they it is biochemical, but you can describe biochemical relations using ordinary differential equations as well. Uh, and so a, a lot of the modeling uses techniques like that. And so there is a lot of commonality in that sense. I mean, these are a lot more noisy circuits though, because, well, in electronic circuit you have, you know, tremendous number of electrons where you can just kind of think of everything as a flow and you don't like track individual electrons, at least not typically in most electronic design. Um, but in biological circuits, these proteins can be in small quantities, you know, tens or hundreds, and that makes these a lot more noisy. And so the techniques that we usually develop and, and work with in our lab, uh, are more of stochastic Monte Carlo methods for reasoning about the operations of circuits. And so we we do simulations using these stochastic algorithms and stochastic techniques. Oh. Because of the in them.
0: And so the work that you're doing now is it's all just computer-based or are you actually gonna build some cir- some uh, synthetic biology circuits?
1: So the work that we've been doing um, in my group uh, since I started working in this area has largely been designing software tools for computational Uh, design of synthetic biology circuits. Um, One of the reasons I moved here two years ago was the opportunity to start a wet lab. And so we'll be opening a wet lab at the end of this summer, um, beginning to figure out what it is we want to do there. We've certainly worked with experimentalists um, from time to time, uh, but it's also difficult sometimes to get them to do what you want to do because they've got their own agendas. And so Mm -hmm. it'll be fun to have our own lab to work with and So my research group is starting to toy with what do we we actually wanna do in that lab and figuring out what equipment we need to order that, but it's all gonna be new for
0: us. Do you envision, you know, some of the stuff that I guess Vintner had done long ago was synthesizing DNA from scratch, uh, putting it into uh, E. coli, booting it up and having the E. coli do all the work. Do you envision something like that? Well, I mean, to a certain degree, yes. I mean, so,
1: uh, that's, that's what we do with these in in this field is we do design DNA and then we put them into cells and then let the cells, uh, do the job. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the bread and butter of how you do synthetic biology is you manipulating cells, DNA, so they can make something useful for you, whether it's a drug compound or a biofuel or something like that. In Ventner's work, he went a step further and he tried to do the entire genome as opposed to Normally what we're doing is we're sticking um, kind of little hijacker DNAs in that do what we want, while at the same time, the rest of the genome continues to do what the cell needs to survive. Um, That's actually a big problem sometimes is that you can overburden cells so that they Mm -hmm. don't grow well because they're too busy doing what you want, not busy enough doing what they need to survive. Um, Yeah, and Ventner's project, he wasn't working with the E. coli, he was working with Mm -hmm. something with microplasma genitalium um, where he, he actually, his lab, his group, they, they took the DNA from one organism, resynthesized it and put it into a different organism and essentially booted it up and saw that it could live and survive. So they essentially reprogrammed a cell, but with a program that already existed in nature, right? So it's not like they, they did a few optimizations, but we don't really understand things to the level where we can just start with AGCTs and make a new organism. So it wasn't...
0: wasn't it synthesized different. from scratch it was modified well
1: the right so the sequence was not synthesized from scratch the dna was synthesized from scratch because uh-huh. you know, we know how to make you know a strand of dna but the um but the actual program you put in it um, we're still at a loss you know really how to make a full-on program for a cell uh mm-hmm. mostly what we do is we we base it off of the natural ones with some tinkering so there's been mm-hmm follow-up work by some groups where they've taken yeast which is more complicated because it's a eukaryote uh, meaning it has a nuclear membrane um, and has you know multiple chromosomes and what they've done is they've essentially rebuilt all the chromosomes but mm-hmm. they they optimized them so they would take out things that were they thought were unnecessary and try to basically see whether they could still make a viable uh, yeast um, and so that that's been a very you know, or shadowing interesting project. But but again, there's very little work that's really de novo. I and mean, if you think about the stuff that we design with, um, the the parts that we use are parts that we find in nature. So just like uh, any sort of engineering design, you need a set of parts. And so we um, go out and find parts in nature, cut them out and put them together in new ways. And so one of the big things we do is in our group is developing part libraries and, in sharing them. Um, so we've developed a database called Symbiohub, which is used uh, to share information about genetic parts uh, with people that are looking for parts for their designs.
0: What's an example of a part?
1: Part would be something like a promoter, which is this, the region on DNA that initiates transcription of a DNA. Um, ribosome binding site, which is where translation gets started to translate the, pro- uh, the mRNA into protein. Coding sequences, those are basically the instructions for which amino acids to put together to make a protein. Terminators, which are used to indicate when you should stop transcription. Those are the four basic parts, but there's there's a variety of other useful parts.
0: Wow, so with these building block elements, you can synthesize the DNA chain that's gonna start here, build this protein, stop here kind of thing? Exactly, with those four parts, you can
1: basically build a protein of choice, um, depending on which promoter you pick, you can control when it gets built. So you can have constitutive promoters that are building the protein all the time, but you can also have promoters that are inhibited by other proteins, which essentially allows them to, you uh. to turn these on and off like a switch. And so you can make, um, say, a basic genetic inverter out of those four parts I mentioned, where you have a promoter that is repressed by some protein. So when that protein is present you don't get the output when it isn't. When the input protein is not present, uh, you do get the output. And so that's, that's the basics of a genetic inverter.
0: What other kind of circuit element analogs do you anticipate being able to build in addition like an inverter? So
1: people have built all kinds of different things. Um, in fact, the field uh, was sort of spawned with two papers that were published in Science in 2000. In one case, somebody built something called a later, which was really just an oscillator, you know, three inverters in series, um, you know, in a, in a loop to make an oscillator. Uh, and they actually showed, you know, cells kind of turning green, dimming, turning green again, so you could see them uh, oscillating. And then a toggle switch, which um, to you and me is really a set reset uh, flip-flop, but they didn't know any better, so they called it the genetic toggle switch. Um, But yeah, so basically apply one input, you could turn on a switch, take it away, it could hold its state. Similarly, you could reset the switch. So those were the classic ones that, as I said, spawned this whole field, but now people can design just about anything. And so some of my collaborators at um, MIT and Boston University built a tool that they call Cello, where you can describe in Verilog a combinational circuit, and it will go through a library of parts and pick them to build sort of any three input, one output logic circuit, or to design, I should say. I mean, build, you have to go into the lab and put it together, but, but anything you can describe of that simple complexity. But, but to be clear, these are fairly simple circuits. Like I said, three inputs, yeah. one output. Um, again, it gets back to what I said before about the burden on a cell. You can't put a lot of gates into a cell before you start um, making it have a difficulty to um, carry on with its normal business.
0: Yeah, but, you know, all early technology started out really simple in building just a, a few gate systems, but it sounds like if you have the software environment, the, the, the design database in place, you can I- extend that and build more and more complex circuits um, and then figure out, you know, what kind of organism it can effectively grow in or, or you can you can use. So, there's like a lot of potential down the line for this. Um
1: yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's true. And I think the thing, I mean, it's, it's a different sort of potential and that um, a number of years back, I went to the asynchronous circuits conference. I hadn't been in a while and we came and presented a paper on a genetic design of a, a molar C element, which is a famous um, state holding gate for asynchronous designers like us. And, you know, it was exciting. The paper was very well received. We got the best paper award at the ASYNC conference. Um, but when one of the people asked us like, what are the units on your X axis? these is not really astronomical. And so they're not gonna be biocomputers, if you will. Uh, I, I don't really see that, you know, in the future that they're not doing computation at speeds that we're used to. And that's really not the intent um, the intent is to use cells to make useful things or to destroy useful things. If you want to, you know, destroy toxic waste, or, or if people even try to build, you know, cells that could destroy tumors, um, so they can they can go and do useful things. But we want to be able to program them to do those useful things at the right times.
0: But um, you know what? I think that's what's really cool is that you're taking, you know, traditional, you know, asynchronous circuits been used in in a a lot of electronic systems for a long time and you're applying some of that technique to biological systems.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it's an exciting area and it's, uh, I wasn't sure if it would ever turn into my only area, but it's pretty much all I do now.
0: Right, and I guess I was always under the impression that the goal was to create uh, computational analogs using biological systems, rather than using the, the circuit techniques for, biological purposes rather than computational purposes
1: yeah i mean i think it's more likely if you're thinking about computation i think it's more likely we'll learn from biology Mm -hmm. to work with uh, to develop um you know more silicon-based electronics Mm -hmm. better Mm -hmm. biology does have a leg up when it comes to power efficiency and and dealing with Mm -hmm. components Mm -hmm. and redundancy and um, so i think there's a lot to be learned from that but the uh, I'm I'm not really banking on a biocomputer anytime mm-hmm.
0: soon. Mm-hmm. The technique that you use to do the synthesis and inject the piece that you're doing into the um, the 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 rest of the DNA for the uh, for the E. coli is that you know standard like CRISPR. Uh, yeah, that's one of the
1: things people do use, but. Uh, it, we probably much simpler stuff than that. I mean there are a variety of ways of assembling DNA um that uh, basically there are places you can cut DNA in different ways and um using different enzymes and so there's techniques for manipulating it uh, but also these days, you can just go to a company and say, "I want this sequence and they'll ship it to you in the mail. Wow, so wow. it is really getting kind of to the point where you uh-huh. know chips got to right where you have fab houses, yeah vendors and you just say, I, I'd like to order this. So wow. it's, it's kind of the, I mean, the parallels between this and our, our fields, um, you know, in electronics are very stark in the sense that, you know, initially we probably put components together, right? You get a bunch of pieces and you'd wire them up yourselves, but we're really getting to the point now where you can
0: go and fabricate whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Wow. So they're going to be biological systems, not, comp- not- biological analogs of electronic systems.
1: Correct. And I think that that, I mean, I, I mean some molecular computing analogs
0: because that's,
1: you know, it's kind of yeah. novelty, right? I mean, yeah. and the, the cello paper designed all these different circuits, but never really talked about why you'd want to design any of the circuits, right? It's not, mm. uh, it's more of a, uh, can you build a logic circuit to do this? Uh, and I think that one of the things that were needing to push more on is okay. Now, why do you want to design a logic circuit to do that? Uh, That was the other question we got in our talk is why do we want a genetic molar seal what might we use that for? Um, And uh, so we spent some time actually thinking about, we could use it in in an application like this tumor killing where you could use it to, to basically turn on a switch in the presence of certain compounds that might be the presence of cancer and enable you to activate a device. And so it's, it's simple sort of sensor actuator types of devices we have in mind.
0: Uh-huh. What do you envision to be some of the first um, uh, genetic circuits that you might build in your lab?
1: Uh, that's a good question. We're debating that <laughs> as we speak. Um, so one of the things that my students are really fascinated with is the idea of automation. And so there's this company called OpenTrons that sells really cheap kind of pipetting robots. And so we've just ordered one. Um, so it's for about 20k you have a pretty good setup and so they're really keen on doing kind of high throughput things using robotics. Um, but the, I think the thing that we're we're really interested in is uh, characterization. So if you want to have a library of parts, they need to be well characterized if you probably you're probably old enough to remember the TTL data book and so yeah've been bringing that up of having a, a data, data sheets for for uh-huh. these parts. And so we don't think people are doing, the best job in terms of characterization. They're mostly just kind of most of the experimentalists kind of just work at the, by the seat of their pants. They put things together. They don't do a lot of modeling. Um, they, they basically try to put things together until they work. And we're really, as engineers, we want to have, you know, good descriptions of our parts, and then we can automatically explore the design space and come up with the right solutions for these designs. Um, so I think that those that's one of the areas that we're looking at. I mean, it, there's also a couple of circuits that we've designed and published in papers that we've never gotten a chance to build. Build, um, Like I mentioned with the molar C element, we wanted to build this uh, basically kind of a filter that would not activate incorrectly. And we wanted to do it with sort of three of these C elements hooked together. And I've mentioned before that it's hard to put a lot of circuits into a single cell. So what we we're thinking of doing is have three different types of cells each with a different molar in them, and have them communicating with each other uh, using a technique called quorum sensing, which is a technique cells use to emit molecules and pick them up in their environment. And so we could basically make three different types of cells talking together like a composite circuit, if you will. And that's probably one of my dream applications if we could put that together, because I think that's one way to really scale up is if you have, because you can have lots and lots of cells in a population if you have them sort of emulating different circuits, you could build larger, more complicated circuits that also have this isolation now between each other so that they're, uh, cause normally the, the circuits are working without any isolation. They're just floating around in the cell. And it, it's like having every wire could short with every other wire essentially.
0: What organism do you envision as your kind of vehicle for your circuits? So I'm not a biologist, so
1: we'll keep simple and just work with E. coli. I think, um, you know, maybe down the line I might get into yeast or something like that. But there, there are people out there working with mammalian cells and you know working on applications like that. But those are a lot more complicated, a lot more difficult to understand. Uh, we still don't really fully understand how many of these cells operate. I mean, that's one of the things about the field is that there's still so much we don't know about biology that it it does hamper us. Sometimes we're trying to, you know, build within a, a chassis that we don't really fully understand.
0: Do you envision any issues with if your E. coli gets flushed down the drain?
1: Is it going to be escaping.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's a concern for sure is that um, I think when people first started working many, many years ago in the lab, they're really afraid of like what would happen if these escaped and what they mostly found is they didn't survive very well because the E. coli were kind of, it's kind of like, I guess, if you have animals in a zoo and they all escape, they don't really know how to deal with not being in the zoo anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're not usually particularly a health threat in that sense, but as we're manipulating them, there is, you know, things to potentially be worried about. And so um, I was just on a review panel for a funding agency. and one of the the key things that everybody had to put in their proposal was biocontainment so how are you going to make sure mm-hmm. that these things uh, you know can't really work outside um, uh, the cell design uh, the design environment where you're working and so people have talked about things like kill switches so you can deactivate these things as needed you know having them have limited lifespans um, and other things along those lines I mean it it really depends upon what you're doing and, and what um, know, kind of levels of risks there are. And uh, a while back, I was invited to a meeting um, in DC, where it basically looking at at the threat level of, you know, bioterrorism or something along those lines. And so there's a very lengthy report that was developed by this committee. And They bring you into a room with people from Homeland Security and the FBI, (laughs) asking (laughs) questions to try to learn about the field. And then they excuse you and they go off into a windowless room that they can't invite you into to (laughs) really tough questions of some of the others. Um, So, so people have been thinking about, uh, you know a variety of different concerns. And it's, it's interesting when you go to symbio conferences. a lot of the presenters, I mean, we often have people from ethics and, and security and you know safety and giving talks where in electrical engineering conferences I'd never experienced that. Maybe we yeah. should have those talks as well. But um, definitely, this community has been very proactive about you know keeping those concerns front and center.
0: Well, I think the last James Bond movie had a theme of synthetic biology as the the uh, weapon of mass destruction that's targeted yeah. to specific DNA. So I,
1: I think that the um, well, that's, that is very much science fiction, but, but that's actually when one of the reasons I don't stay up at late night worrying too much about this is that bioweapon is not targetable like it was shown in the, in the Bond movie, right? It, oh, that's and, a relief. <laughs> non-discriminatory. And you know, a terrorist is not typically wanna fire a weapon that you can't aim. Um, at least you can't really imagine state actors wanting to fire a weapon you can't aim at your, at your enemy. And so they're much better weapons for that. And so, um, you know, I I don't think, I mean, maybe possibly (laughs) that might be a a realm where, but I, I think it's still far
0: from what we're able to do. This field of synthetic biology seems to be quite a interdisciplinary field. Um, that it's more than just the, um, the biochemists and, and molecular biologists that are involved in it. For, you, you're coming from an electrical engineering perspective. Do you find that that there are many electrical engineers that are looking at synthetic biology as the next field to apply their skills to?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean when I got in this field, um, I was uh, somewhat unique coming from my background, but not at all anymore. Um, a lot of my colleagues come from Various different engineering areas. Uh, so basically, I think what we all discovered at various points in our careers is that, you know, biologists don't get the same training we do as engineers. You know, they tend to be, uh-huh. um, you know, in a lab-based setting where you try things out until they work, and it's a, it's a different type of work where we have, you know, model-based design principles, and uh, so engineers are something to bring the table in that regard, and so. You do have more and more engineers that are in this field because we have, I think, um, something that can really help them do a more design-oriented approach to this, rather than a an ad hoc um, uh, approach that they currently use. Now, and the community is very much, you know, a mix. I mean, you have, um, you know, a variety of people still coming from the more traditional side as well, but I think that there's more synergies and more conversations happening. In fact, I teach a course where I intentionally really don't have prerequisites because I want to have biochemists and mathematicians and computer scientists and electrical engineers all in the same room, Mm. um, you know, learning from each other on, uh, in this field.
0: Mm. Wow. So I can't wait to see uh, some of the, the uh, uh, circuits that you guys create with your synthetic genetics. Um, And uh, when you have stuff working in the lab, uh, we'll probably uh, do another visit and maybe we'll do a video then and and see some of these uh, biological circuits in action. That sounds great. Well, hey, Chris, thanks so much for your time today. It's been great. Thank you. And that concludes my interview. My thanks to Chris Myers for joining us and to Rodian Schwartz for sponsoring this broadcast. And thanks everyone for joining us today. I hope you check out all of our other podcasts at the Signal Integrity Journal and that's 30 for this edition.